We are embarking tonight upon part eight in our series entitled Defending Your Faith. And in order to make sure that all of you have everything that you need by way of the handouts, which we have been uh, giving each time we've met, I want to make sure that you have the three handouts that we're giving you tonight, which are in the back. And I believe the men have some ready copies of that. The first one If you do not have one, you can raise your hand and they'll pass it to you. It's entitled, Theology Through the Lens of History. Theology Through the Lens of History. Several of you have asked me about that, and I wanted to be able to have that ready for you tonight. And the gals worked especially hard to ensure that it is in your hands as of tonight. That's a class that I taught over at Fellowship Bible Church and also taught during our Shepherds Conference And it's really a 25-page paper that really gives the history of the way God and man and the salvation transaction have been understood through the lens of history. And so if you do not have that, you can raise your hand, and that is here and is available to you tonight. And I'm sure there will be some extra copies that will be available also for those who are not here who you might want to mention that too. And then with regard to our series, Defending Your Faith, which we're going to be covering tonight, we have available for you part six on the deity of Jesus Christ, which you know we went through two times ago now on the deity of Christ, part six. And as I understand it, you have already received uh, part one, part two, and part three on the doctrine of the Bible. And then part, parts 4 and 5 on the Trinity have been passed out to you up to this point. Now, if you do not have parts 1 through 5, the handouts, then you simply need to call the office or to ask someone if they might be able to give you a copy of that. We've been passing those out regularly to you. And if for some reason you have missed any of those Handouts, you can certainly ask for them, and we'd be happy to give them to you. And, of course, last time we taught in this Defending Your Faith series, it was part seven on the doctrine of justification. The doctrine of justification. And tonight, we're going to be giving you part eight and the doctrine of sanctification. Now, the handouts for those two tonight and on the message on justification, they'll be ready for you next time. You remember that I said I want to give them to you uh, as we give them one week later, and we're going to be giving those to you as time permits, but what I thought would be very, very helpful to you tonight, at least as a one-page document, looks like this, and it's called the distinction between justification and sanctification. It's just a one-page sheet, and if you do not have that, please raise your hand, and the men will bring that to you and will give it to you. It's a very helpful one-page summation that I believe finds its origin in the book on holiness by J.C. Ryle. And this is very, very helpful, just as a one-page sheet that gives you both the similarities and the distinctions between these two doctrines. And so we want you to have that. And so there are several others who have raised their hand. We want to pass that out to you tonight. Uh, 
And I thought that would be helpful to you as you work your way through what I'm going to say tonight and what I have said last time on the doctrine of justification. And then I will give you those handouts on parts 7 and then part 8 tonight, next time. Okay? Now, tonight, we want to occupy our time with this matter of the doctrine of sanctification. In our last session, we spoke about that crucial doctrine of justification, and we said that if a man is to be right with God, it would be solely on the basis of his being declared righteous by God, and that based not on his own merits, but upon the merits of the life and death of Jesus Christ. Now, this work of Christ would be imputed to the sinner, as we talked about last time, as the ground of his being declared right with God. In other words, when we define the doctrine of justification, we have to define it in such a way that it goes outside of the sinner. Because the sinner is inherently sinful, both by nature and by choice, then if he is ever to be right with God, this justification must come from outside of him. It could never be inherently from within because our lives are fraught with sin. And so being declared righteous by God is on the virtue of someone else, not ourselves. And that someone else, of course, is none other than Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man who was given to us as our justification. Now, every cult, every cult can be marked by a denial of the orthodox doctrine of justification. In fact, that is one of the ways that you can determine a cult anywhere at any time. If they deny that a man is declared righteous by God simply and only upon the merits of Jesus Christ and nothing from within that person, if they deny that, then they are by very definition a cult. Now, normally, most of the cults that we would come in contact with would deny both the doctrine of justification and often either the doctrine of the Trinity or the deity of Christ or both. And that's usually the earmarks in which we can easily discern whether or not this is an orthodox or unorthodox religious group. And every cult believes in the ground of the believers standing before God being either themselves alone, the individual person, or some admixture of the work of Christ and the work of themselves. You say, well, that cuts a wide swath with many, many groups. And that is true. There are many, many groups that believe in the work of man and the work of Christ, or even simply their own work, even apart from the work of Christ, and that does include many, many groups. One of the ones that it includes, in fact, the largest one in the world, is the Roman Catholic Church. You say the Roman Catholic Church is a cult? Yes, it is. Because they believe in a salvation that is mixed with the righteousness of Christ and human works, human merit, works within the believer. And I just said to you that if someone is going to be justified by God, it must come from outside of him. And if any group believes that the righteousness that is acceptable to God comes both from within, 
and from without, even an admixture of the two, they are inherently a cult. Now, the question is, what must we think about such a thing? Well, normally, when you brand some group or organization a cult, you have to say what kind and how far uh, have they fallen in their view of God and His world. And there are, of course, cults all around who have many, many strange and varied teachings, which by the very nature of much of what they teach, you can easily discern where they're coming from. Sometimes it's far more subtle than that. And so you have to be a very, very wise and noble Berean examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things are so, to be able to discern the truth and error in any one group. And one of the initial marks of the cult-like tendencies of any group is what they do with the doctrine of justification. Now, another thing that often occurs within cults as we defend our faith is on this matter of the doctrine of sanctification. They, that is, these cults, confuse oftentimes the doctrine of sanctification and add it to justification. In fact, you could make the case that anyone, any individual or any group who takes the works of the individual person and adds it to the work of Christ is confusing the work of sanctification and the work of justification. Because any work that I do is properly within the realm of sanctification. It's something that I'm doing. It's work that I'm doing in my life in order to be accepted by God. By the very biblical definition, that is sanctification. That's in that doctrinal realm. And if a person believes that somehow they are doing some work, then they're confusing the two doctrines, justification and sanctification. And, of course, they're heretical on both. And because these cults and groups don't teach the orthodox view of justification, they will inevitably come up with heretical beliefs and teachings on the doctrine of sanctification. Now, what we're going to do tonight is we're going to teach the biblical doctrine of sanctification. I wish we had time to go through what many of these cults specifically believe on these doctrines so that you can see clearly why they have aberrant views on sanctification. We'll talk very briefly at the end about some of these and some of the approaches to sanctification that they teach, but at least tonight I want you to have a handle on what you believe regarding the doctrine of sanctification. Now, I think it's well for us, first of all, to define what is the doctrine of sanctification? No one can rightly defend their faith unless they have a solid, solid understanding of the doctrine of sanctification. And what I mean by the word sanctification, which is a big word, it's a word that's not often used, it should be, but it isn't. What I mean by sanctification is this. It is the process of growth within the believer in which he matures into the image of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're taking notes, I'll give that to you again so that you can have it for your study. The doctrine of sanctification is the process of growth within the believer in which he matures into the image of Jesus Christ. That, simply stated, is the process of sanctification. That's how the Bible defines it. 
One of the very helpful books in this regard is Bruce Milne and his book, Know the Truth. And he says this about sanctification. Sanctification is essentially that process whereby the Spirit makes increasingly real in our lives our union with Christ in His death and resurrection. In other words, what God has done to us or for us in the matter of our justification being declared righteous on the merits of Christ and His work on the cross, then God makes real to us our own union with Christ through His death and resurrection. That's sanctification. God making real to us, showing us the relationship of what Christ did on the cross and declaring us righteous before God and how that real, tangible justification begins to work itself in us the matter of change, spiritual change. That's very, very helpful. You could say it like this. The doctrine of sanctification is the process of conforming me into the likeness of Christ. I'm changed. I'm a different person. Justification does not make any real change in the individual believer at the very point of that justification. It's a declarative act. It's what someone does for me, God through Christ. But sanctification is what God immediately does on the heels of justification to make me righteous. You say, boy, that's a very fine line. Yes, it is a fine line, but it is a line that needs to be drawn nonetheless. Sanctification is not justification, and justification is not sanctification. The two are distinct, yet they are inseparable. And we want to understand this matter of sanctification. What does it really look like? I mean, if you were to say about a person, they are sanctified or they are in the process of sanctification, what does it look like? Well, I want to give you, in outline form, three points. Three points that give us a real and tangible look at the matter of sanctification. Point number one is this. We want a great, solid, biblical handle on sanctification. We must realize, first of all, that sanctification is recognizing that Jesus Christ Himself is our holiness. Sanctification is the recognition that Jesus Christ Himself is our holiness, or He is our sanctification. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is this, that the Bible explicitly teaches that Jesus Christ is our holiness. That is, He is the one who has accomplished our sanctification for us, because He was the very sanctification of God. He is the very one who completely was set apart unto God. You say, well, where is that in the Bible? Well, I want you to turn, first of all, in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 for the biblical proof of this teaching. In other words, when we are saying that we are on the road to sanctification... If we're on the path of holiness, being conformed to the image of Christ, the Bible tells us that Christ has gone there before us. That He has gone there before us to lead the way. And that He is the very sanctification of God. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says this, 
Paul speaking to the Corinthians, and he says, but by his doing, God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus. See, there's that issue of justification. Anyone who is declared right by God, according to Paul in the Bible, is in Christ, in Christ Jesus. And he says, by his doing, by God's work, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. You see, Jesus Christ is presented to us here as the author of sanctification. He is the very essence of being set apart by God Himself. You could say He is the captain of our salvation, both in our justification, because He made it a reality, and in our sanctification, because He was perfectly and completely set apart by God That is a wonderful, wonderful truth. You might even say it this way. That Jesus Christ, in the matter of being our sanctification, is the pioneer. He's the pioneer of our sanctification. He is the one who has brought us not only justification, but sanctification as well. You say, how is he this pioneer? Well, there are a few passages which speak to this. Acts chapter 3, for instance, speaks to this matter of Jesus Christ being our sanctification. Acts chapter 3, verse 15. Peter was preaching. This was his second sermon at Pentecost. And in verse 14, he tells the Jews of his day, you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. But instead, he says, you put to death the prince of life. And that word prince is that very concept of Jesus Christ being the author, the pioneer, the captain of our salvation. He's the one who has led the way. I love that concept of Jesus Christ being the prince of life. The very one who is the captain or pioneer of life. And that shows us that he is our captain even in the matter of sanctification. Acts chapter 5, verse 31, gives us the same concept. Acts 5, 31. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a Savior. Some of your translations may have an alternate word in the margin that says He is the leader and a Savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. He's our leader. He's the one who's gone out ahead. Hebrews chapter 2 also teaches this. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory. See, that's the process of sanctification. To perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. And then, Hebrews chapter 12. Just the idea, again... That Jesus Christ, Hebrews 12, 2, is the author and perfecter of faith. The word author there, again, as an alternate, is the leader. He's the leader of our faith. He's the one who has gone before us. He's the pioneer. He's the one who's made it all happen. And if there's anyone who has ever been set apart unto God in the matter of sanctification, it's the person of Christ. You say, wait a minute. How can he be set apart to God that he was never a sinner? 
Well, he was set apart to God in the matter of being the leader, the progenitor, the one who brings us both justification and sanctification. He's the one who's led the way. He's out in front. Even though he was not a sinner in and of himself, he's the one who's leading the way for us to be conformed to his own very image. I love what Sinclair Ferguson says about this. He says, Christ is our sanctification. In him it has first come to its fulfillment and consummation. He not only died for us to remove the penalty of our sin by taking it himself, he has lived died, risen again, and been exalted in order to sanctify our human nature in Himself for our sake. He goes on to say, He is the lead climber. Isn't that good imagery? He's the lead climber who is the first and only fully sanctified person. As pioneer, Jesus has Himself gone ahead of us to open up the way to the Father. By doing so, He brings to the Father in similar obedience all those who are roped to Him by grace and faith. You see, it's the imagery of Jesus Christ being that lead climber who's walking up the mountain of sanctification, completely and perfectly set apart by God to be that leader. None of us could be so because we have sin in our life. He's the one who is leading the way as the lead climber. And if we're in Christ, we're all grabbing a hold of the rope of sanctification and He's leading us up to the pinnacle of the mountain, which is full glory. Boy, that's rich. That is so good. You say, well, I'm not sure about this. It sounds sort of strange. I I don't know that I've heard much about this idea before. Well, you have to look no further than John chapter 17 to see what Jesus himself says about himself in this matter of sanctification. In John chapter 17, verse 17, which you know well, says this, Sanctify them in the truth. Jesus speaking to the Father, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. But notice he goes on to say, verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. You see his leadership? As the Father has sent Christ into the world, Christ therefore has sent believers into the world. And then he says, verse 19, this incredible statement, for their sakes... For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Have you ever seen that verse? That's a wonderful verse. That's speaking of Christ saying, I am willing to set myself apart for the task of being the author, the prince, the captain, the pioneer of the matter of salvation. I'm leading the way. And I surely will bring you along with me as the rope is pulled. That's very, very wonderful theological truth. Listen, any sanctification we experience, any righteousness, any growth, any maturity, any conformity to the image of this Christ whom we say we love and serve is simply the result of the path He Himself has paved before us. That's our Christ. We cannot be sanctified apart from the sanctification that Christ Himself went through on our behalf. Every step He took in His earthly ministry was designed for us to see the sanctification process. That's why you know now that when it came time for Jesus to be baptized, it wasn't that He needed to be baptized for any sins in His life, but He says, 
permitted at this time in order to what? Fulfill all righteousness. You see, he was totally and completely set apart to God. And the fulfillment of all righteousness is what Christ as the leader is going to do. This is a wonderful, wonderful truth. Any real sanctification that we undergo is only because we have Christ as our leader who shows us the way to be set apart by God. There are a number of other passages, maybe a couple of them that would show you this Christ as the model or the example in our sanctification. 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 23. We don't have time to look there, but at least you can write it down. Look at it later. Hebrews 5, 8. Hebrews 5, 8, which is a wonderful passage in this regard. And then also Hebrews 2, 11. Hebrews 2, 11. You know, that's the reality of what Paul himself knew in his own life when he thought about Christ as his sanctification, Christ as his holiness. You remember a number of times Paul would say something like this, 1 Corinthians 15.10, I labored more than you all. That's work. That's the exerting of effort. That's sanctification. I labored more than you all, he said, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. You see, immediately harkens back to the power source, to the grace source. And the grace source is Christ because He has led the way. You remember Paul saying in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, I will boast in my weakness of the power of God. It's the power of Christ. It's the leadership of Christ. It's the pioneering work of Christ that allows any of us to be sanctified at all. Colossians 1.29, Paul said, I labor, I strive to present every man complete in Christ, and yet it is the power of God that mightily works within me. You see, he, he couldn't even say that. He wouldn't even say that unless he knew that Christ himself was the leader, the pioneer of all sanctification in the believer's life. You say, well, this is not necessarily a truth that I've been very familiar with before. Well, you should. And that's why we're spending time on it tonight. Because in order for you to defend your faith accurately, we need to understand that Christ is not just the one who's brought me justification, but He's brought me sanctification as well. All right, point number two. Sanctification is not just Jesus Christ being confirmed by the testimony of Scripture as the one who's truly and completely set apart by God. But secondly, sanctification is the living out of my union with Jesus Christ. You see, it's not just seeing Christ as my leader, as my pioneer. It's my sanctification being seen as the living out of my union with Christ. It's the living out of my own sanctification while seeing that it comes from a vital, dynamic union with Christ. And this is a very, very crucial element of our sanctification. Crucial in this sense, that it flows out of my identity and union with Christ. I don't know if you realize this in your own personal study or in the theological study that you may have read outside of the Scripture, but one of the most crucial and yet, unfortunately, one of the most neglected doctrines in all of theological study and all of the Christian life is the misunderstanding and sometimes even the misapplication of the doctrine of our union with Christ. You know, every time that Paul gives that little phrase, in Christ, in the Lord, in Him. Those phrases are pregnant with meaning. 
They aren't just little phrases that he just sort of throws into his prayer or throws into the theological heap just so that we can understand very, very little. It's really on the basis of our union with Christ that all sanctification flows out from. It's so very important. You say, how so? Well, let me show you. In Romans chapter 6, really just going to talk about two passages under this heading, and Romans 6 is one of them. Romans chapter 6. And I want to show you how our union with Christ and this sanctification as a result of that union plays out in our Christian life. Romans chapter 6. Paul says in verse 3, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, there's that aspect of our union with Christ, those who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death. In other words, if I'm in Christ, I'm in Christ in His death as well. Not just in His life, but also in His death. Verse 4, Therefore, we have been buried with, with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. And you can just see this tremendous imagery here of spiritual baptism. This is not talking about water baptism. It's talking about spiritual baptism. We've been dipped into Jesus Christ. And as a result, he says, therefore, in verse 4, we ought to be walking in newness of life. We're united with Christ. You see, any sanctification, any spiritual growth, any maturity that I have as a believer in Christ is as a result of what Christ did and my union in Christ. You see, I can't be sanctified on my own. How could I ever be conformed to the image of Christ, grow spiritually, mature spiritually, if Christ had never died? And if that death was never imputed to me, if I was never in Christ? If that were not true, there's no way for me to be sanctified. There's no way for me to be justified. It has to be as a result, a direct result, of my union with Christ. He says in verse 6, knowing this, knowing this great truth, that our old man was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin, freed from sin's power. You see, if I am sanctified at all, growing in Christ's likeness, it's as a result of what I am in Christ. I have been crucified with Him. All believers corporately have been crucified with Him. And it was, was done in order that. There's a purpose clause there. In order that my body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. He goes on in verse 8 to say, And if we've died with Christ or in Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Boy, this is tremendous theology. It's showing us that if you have a vital, dynamic union with Christ, if you're one of those who are in Christ, in the body of Christ, and the very warp and woof of who Jesus Christ is as He moves as the head of His body in the church, then you'll be sanctified. You'll be freed from the power of sin. Have you ever struggled with the matter of sin? And Have you ever said to yourself, My goodness, this thing just keeps hanging on. This is a struggle. This is hard work. 
Well, the work becomes easier as you mature in your knowledge and understanding that, listen, if I'm in Christ, if I'm in Him, if I'm in Him by virtue of His death and burial and resurrection, the Bible tells me that I will also then ultimately be able to walk in newness of life. I'll be able to respond to sin. It will not be the master over me. He even says in verse 11, because of this great truth, even so, consider yourselves, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. You see, the only reason I'm alive from the dead is because Christ is alive from the dead. My union with Him brings me to the place of being able to present my body as a living sacrifice. Boy, this is, this is great truth. And you see, the cults, they deny truth like this because what they're doing is they misapply, misunderstand, and heretically teach the union that we have with Jesus Christ. And so the sanctification that they're talking about is not the sanctification that's spoken about here. Because orthodox teaching says that as an outflow of my union with Christ, Christ is doing a work in me. Cults, by the very nature of who they are, are trying to crank out good works, but they're trying to do it in and of themselves. It's not because of a vital union with Christ. It's because of what they're trying to do in their own effort, in their own power. That's why it ultimately fails. You know... In this matter of our union with Christ, I've said to you before, and this is so very, very important, usually in the sweep of Pauline teaching, Pauline theology, he does what is commonly called the indicative imperative. What he means by that when he uses those particular ideas is this, that because of my union with Christ, that's the indicative. That's a statement of fact. I am in Jesus Christ. It's indicative of who I am. I'm a blood-bought servant of Jesus Christ because I'm in Christ. And he goes on from there to say that not only is that true of you in the indicative mode, but also because of that truth, because you're in Christ, it is imperative that you live like it. You see, the doctrine of sanctification says this, because I'm in Christ, I need to live up to who I am in Christ. And you see, some of these cults, they may say they're in Christ, but if they don't live up to the reality of who they say they are in Christ, then you can know that the indicative statements about them are not true. But it is also a weighty thing for us. Because if we say we have a vital dynamic union with Jesus Christ, if we say that's indicative of who we are, then what does that mean in our sanctification? That it needs to occur. That full and complete effort needs to occur in this Christian life because I'm attempting to live up to who I say I am in Christ. You see, that's why someone who says, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm not growing. Or someone who says, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm not in fellowship with the Lord. Or someone who you perceive their life and you look at it, maybe it's a friend or a relative or a family member, and you look at their life and you say, you know, over the pattern of your life, as long as I've known you, I haven't seen that growth. I haven't seen that maturity. I wonder where you are. And it could be that it is true. It could be that it is true. That the indicative statements that they're in Christ are not so. And therefore, that is the very reason why they haven't lived out those imperatible commands of the New Testament. 
That's why Paul, when he says, like he does so many times in his epistles, here's theology, here's truth, here's statement of fact about those who are in Christ, and then he'll turn that corner usually with the word therefore, and he says, therefore, as a result of everything I've just told you, as a result of who people are when they're in Jesus Christ, therefore, now you ought to live like it. Now that you know the truth, live up to the truth. Sometimes it's called positional truth and practical truth. That's good. Sometimes it's called doctrinal truth and devotional truth. It's the idea that if I'm in a vital union with Jesus Christ, it's going to change my life. Paul would would not even conceive here in a place like Romans 6 of someone saying, well, I'm in union with Christ, but my life has never really changed. I I have a vital dynamic union with Christ. I mean, I'm in the kingdom, but my life has never really changed as a result. Paul wouldn't even understand that kind of teaching. He would reject that kind of teaching. That's why sometimes when you talk with these members of these cults and you ask them about the change, oh, there might be some sort of external morality that has changed, but inside, inside the heart, especially those who have really begun to check the insides. I've told you before that this particular man that John MacArthur had ministered to by virtue of radio and kept affirming the doctrine of the deity of Christ, and he was a Jehovah's Witness, He began to say in his testimony that as I really began to examine my life, I had to realize that even though I was working hard, even though I was going all over the Florida countryside trying to tell people about my Jehovah's Witness theology, I realized that my heart had never changed. My life had never really been different. And that's from a man who had even as a vocation the responsibility to tell people about what Jehovah's Witnesses teach. But he had to say that in the deep-down recesses of his soul, he'd never really changed. And when he realized that, he realized, I'm not in Christ. And when he prayed to receive Christ, and when he was brought into that glorious and vital and dynamic union with Christ, his life began to change. And when it began to change, he realized the link-up between that which God says is indicatively true and that which God says is imperatively a must, and that is change. This is sanctification, my friends. And this is the truth of your life and my life if we say we're in Christ. You remember Paul in Colossians chapter 3? He says, therefore, if we've been raised up with Christ, seated with Him in the heavenlies, if, 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 if this is true of you, if this is indicatively a part of your life, if this is a statement of fact about you, then keep seeking the things above where Christ is. He goes on. To say, if, if, if this is true of you, then this is the way you're going to live. That's sanctification. Well, that's a tremendous boon to me when I understand that my union with Christ means that my life is going to change. And everyone ought to use that as a barometer to say, am I in Christ? Look at my life. Has it changed? Am I a different person? Do I have new attitudes, new ideas, new thoughts? That didn't come from me. I had my old thoughts that I was grappling with. Are these new thoughts coming to me from a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ? I'm going to start preaching here in a minute. All right. And I love, by the way, the opportunity to discuss when we discuss these truths a very, very important and, again, often neglected truth, and that is this, that when we're talking about believers being in Christ, it is virtually... The teaching of the New Testament that every time it talks about someone being in Christ, it's talking about our corporate relationship together. 
We live in a culture, as I said this morning, that is so individualized that every time someone talks about their relationship with Christ, they really do harm and disservice much of the time to the teaching of the New Testament. Because in the New Testament, all of the time when it talks about our relationship to Christ, it's our relationship to Christ, our communal relationship to Christ, our corporate relationship to Christ. All of the plural we's in those New Testament epistles are talking about the we of the body of Christ, usually expressed in a local congregation. You say, well, does that mean that we really don't stand before God as an individual? No. And God often uses us and often directs us and often deals with us as individuals. But the primary responsibility of the body of Christ is to understand that we are the body of Christ. It's a corporate dynamic. Bruce Milne again says so very wonderfully, this is really good. The Christian life is inescapably corporate. Teaching on Christian holiness has frequently concentrated almost exclusively on the holy man or the holy woman to the neglect of the biblical concern for the holy people or the holy church. This whole approach, he says, needs re-examination. The bulk of New Testament teaching on the Christian life, including the major sections on holiness, occur in letters addressed to corporate groups, to churches. All the major exhortations to holy living are plural, we, you, including exhortations to put on the full armor of God. Similarly, all the New Testament promises of victory are corporate. In other words, the apostles envisaged the Christian life and Christian sanctification in the context of loving, caring fellowship. Individual weaknesses, character defects, personality problems, which we all have, are complemented, supported, healed, and compensated for by the other members of the body of Christ. He goes on to say, this must not be misunderstood, for God does deal with us directly as individuals. Each Christian is summoned to costly personal repentance from sin and to the highest standards of holiness. This recognition of the corporate aspect is no road to moral compromise. Rather, it is a road to Christian sanity, realism, and wholeness. That's good. What he's saying is we have to to get away from this rugged individualism as Christians and we need to go back to the corporate identity that we share in our union with Christ. You see, that puts our whole relationship to each other in a completely different context. We're a part of each other. We're of one another. That's why we've been doing these one another's in our communion times. That's why we have different guys preaching, because no one guy is the preacher. That's why we have different people serving in various ministries, because no one person is the end-all and be-all. We're all together. We need each other. And as we do that in the corporate dimension of our life together as a local church, guess what happens to us as individuals? We grow. We're confronted, admonished, encouraged, built up, strengthened, prayed for. And what happens when one individual moves away from that kind of fellowship? It's like several logs burning brightly on a fire and you take one log away, what happens? The fire quickly goes out. See, sanctification is built out of our union with Christ and that as to who we are in Christ corporately. Isn't this wonderful truth? Now I better go on. Number three. Number three. And finally, sanctification, admittedly, has different aspects according to Scripture. But it is not anything else but what has been previously stated. 
Let me give it to you again. This is very important. I don't want you to misunderstand this. Sanctification has different aspects, to be sure, according to Scripture. But it is not anything else but what has been previously stated. You say, what do you mean? Well, I have to throw in this point because there are times when you read your Bible and you read some of these verses on sanctification and you say, now, wait a minute. That seems to me to be some sort of different sanctification. That, that doesn't sound to be anything like the sanctification that Pastor Lance talked about. What, what does that mean? Well, it is true that there are sometimes the use of the word sanctify or to be sanctified or sanctification that has a different spin to it. I'm primarily tonight talking about the sanctification of personal growth and holiness that each individual Christian has to undergo. But admittedly, there are some different aspects to the doctrine of sanctification in Scripture. For instance, there's one that we could call pre-birth sanctification. Pre-birth sanctification. It is true that there are a couple of passages in Scripture that talk about someone who was set apart by God even prior to their physical birth for some specific divine service. Jeremiah, for example, Jeremiah 1.5, says he was sanctified, set apart, it's the same word, from birth. And I at least have to tell you when we teach the biblical doctrine of sanctification that that is a form of being set apart, but it's not the normal sanctification that we're talking about tonight. But it is listed in our Bibles, and it is true. God, for His own purposes and for His own reasons, sometimes sets a person apart in a sanctified sense for some divine service. It's true of Jeremiah. It's also true, by the way, of John the Baptist. Luke 1.15 it says about him that he was set apart. You remember, uh, he as the child in the womb of Elizabeth, leaped for joy when the announcement came from the cousin Mary. Remember that? Well, that, that's sanctification because the word is used. But it's a different context. It's a different issue. Galatians 1.15, the Apostle Paul says he was set apart even before his mother's birth. Uh, even before his birth, excuse me. And then secondly, there's another kind of sanctification that we must talk about, and it's called positional Sanctification, positional, or I like to call it definitive sanctification. Definitive sanctification. Yes, the Bible teaches that. What is that? Well, that's being set apart in the sense of standing perfectly sanctified in Christ, as though we're already completely holy before God, even before the process is over in space and time. Yes, the Bible teaches that. For instance, in Acts 20.32, it mentions that. Acts 26, 18, it mentions that. And then there's one passage that really speaks of that, 1 Corinthians 1, 2. Paul identifies the Corinthians this way. He says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Past tense. Those who have been set apart. You can make a case that it's talking there about the, the reality of someone's definitive sanctification. That it will happen if someone's in Christ. That's a great promise. And then there's another sanctification that we have to talk about. And that is what we could call perfective, perfective or entire sanctification. Which is really another way of talking about our glorification. It's really talking about the end of the line, the end of the process. It's talking about someone 
who has come to the place where they have been sanctified because of living the Christian life and God sanctifying them. Probably one of the most famous passages is Philippians 1.6. For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will what? Perfect it, mature it, until the day of Christ Jesus. Well, when that day comes, that person will be fully or completely sanctified. It's going to happen. And Paul gives that great, great confidence. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the Bible speaks about that. You remember that verse in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23? Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And that's where we come up with that phrase, entire sanctification. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Entire sanctification. In other words, if you've been justified, the Bible promises that you will be sanctified. The process will find its fruition in the sanctification of the believer. Romans 8. 29 and 30 talk about it. He even talks about it in terms of its past tense reality, as though it's already happened. And then, of course, what we've talked about tonight is really what you properly should call progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification. That's the process of spiritual growth. And there are many, many passages which speak to that, and we've talked about a few of them tonight. Now, as we close tonight... Let me just mention to you that while I have taught you the biblical doctrine of sanctification, there are many forms of what is purported to you and to me to be biblical sanctification, which in fact are not. And I would even endeavor to go further and say this, that the church, the church of Christ, the generic idea of Christendom, has stumbled and fallen many individual believers, true believers, Because they have not been taught the biblical doctrine of sanctification. They've been taught some form of it. But ultimately, it has confused them, it has hurt them, it has discouraged them, because they've not been taught the biblical view of sanctification. You say, well, what does it look like? Well, one of the teachings that you will often hear is what is commonly called perfectionism. Perfectionism. And that is a teaching that says there could actually be a person who lives in this world, who is a true believer, who comes to the point where they don't sin anymore. Not consciously, not deliberately, not by the choice of their own will. It may uh, occur in a faulting sense, it may occur in a stumbling sense, but it's not because they purposed to do it. And they would even go on to say, these perfectionist teachers, that a person can be so sanctified that actually before their glorification... They are entirely sanctified in this life. And that is a teaching which has meant the ruin of many people. Many people. And that is a sanctification which we must reject. Perfectionism, sanctification is not true. Often you will see it in the Wesleyan circles. Wesleyanism teaches perfectionism. And that is something to be dealt with. It's something to be studied But in the end result, it is something to be rejected as a doctrine of sanctification. There's another one that's very prevalent today. We could call it, I've just made up my own terms for lack of uh, the better terms that are out there. This particular form of sanctification we could call spiritual warfare sanctification. Spiritual warfare sanctification. You say, what is that? Well, 
That's people who go around saying, listen, if you have troubles in your life, if you're struggling with sin, if you're falling to temptation, then what you need is you need a zap. You need uh, the kind of deliverance that only God can bring. And when He comes to deliver you from such a sin, then you will be rid of it and you will be sanctified. And when you need uh, some other zapping, when you need some other uh, warfare praying, warfare deliverance, then you come back, you'll receive that, and then you'll be sanctified again. You'll be able to overcome this sin in your life. And believe me, beloved, let me tell you, that is a wrong view of spiritual warfare. It's wrong. You can't just look for the next zap. You can't just look for the next deliverance prayer. If you have that kind of view of sanctification, you will be very frustrated in your Christian life. And yet, that is rampant teaching. There are whole ministries, whole organizations which are set up as deliverance ministries and they go around to different local churches and they try to do all kinds of chants and mantras and incantations and warfare praying and all kinds of things like that. And they try to do their very best to go back. Sometimes even some of them go back into the past of someone. They look at their ancestry. They try to ward off evil spirits and a home, all kinds of things like that. That is not sanctification, not at all. It has nothing to do with biblical sanctification in the precise sense. It's to be rejected. There's another sanctification. We could call it charismatic or crisis sanctification. It's somewhat similar to the first two, but it's an amalgamation of the first two. It's really someone who says that I'm struggling in my Christian life, and whenever there is a crisis, I need the direct intervention of God into my life to help me in this matter of sanctification. And God comes to me, comes to me in a vision, comes to me in a revelation, comes to me with an angel. And they tell me what to do. God leads me. He directs me. He tells me the right thing to do and I do it. And I'm overcoming such a temptation, such a sin. Believe me, if that were the case, I'd be grabbing a hold of that every day of my life, wouldn't you? Well, if I could go directly to God, if He could come directly to me, and He could tell me in my own little ugly-looking ear here, if He could tell me, Lance, don't do this, go this way, trod this path, avoid this person, don't say this, teach this, boy, that that would be my sanctification. All all I'd have to do is say, God, you, You lead me in this way by telling me directly in my own ear, by Your own voice. And I'll know it's You, I'll know it's Your voice, and I'll be able to respond. Boy, what a great sanctification that would be. But that's not the way God operates. He operates specifically and only through this book. And what He tells us is in this book. And the expectation is that we must obey this book. The voice of God is contained here already. Charismatic crisis sanctification will not do. There's another one. We could call it Keswick, higher life, deeper life sanctification. This is a view that says just let go and let God. You've probably heard that phrase before. It's someone who is endeavoring to be so passive, they sort of take all of those phrases about being in Christ to such a degree that they say, well, I'll just be passive. I'll just sit back. I'll just lay back and I'll let Jesus Christ live his life through me. You know what that does? It balances the issue, which are true in so many respects, to the, to, the, to the extreme to such a degree that a person becomes inert spiritually. And that really misses the approach of the New Testament when it says work, work hard, be diligent, pursue. And when it says that, it mitigates against anyone saying, I'm just going to lay back and let God do His work through me. God is the power source, but He says to me, you work and I'll provide the power. See, that's the balance. That's why Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says it so well. 
You work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. There's the balance. It's not quietism. It's not pietism. It's not Keswick, which is a a British theology of higher life. It's not this deeper life where I'm just going to let go and let God. That's not sanctification. And then let me just say at the end, one last one. Psychological sanctification. Psychological sanctification. Or, even more precisely, what we could call psychopharmacological sanctification. That is, someone who says, listen, I'm, 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 I'm dealing with sin, I'm trying to work it out in my life, and this is difficult and hard, and I need help, and I, I've gone to the Word, and I've gone to counselors, and I've gone to these people, and I've gone to my pastor and Bible teachers, and I've gone every route that I know to go. It must be physical. And at times, of course, there are physical dimensions to our life which affect us spiritually. But more often than not, we live in a culture in which if someone even gives the slightest hint that something's going on physically, we drug them. And we say to them, listen, if you take this pill, if you drink this substance, if you do this in a medical fashion, you'll be okay. And of course, what often happens is when someone's not dealing with life in a biblical way and you drug them, they simply become drugged, not sanctified. They may come to the place where they are less than what they were. If they were hyper, then they may not be as hyper, but it's not because they're in the process of sanctification. It's because they have drugs in their system. It dulls their senses. That's why they're not as hyper as they used to be. That's not sanctification, folks. Psychological, psychopharmacological sanctification is not biblical sanctification. Are medical doctors good and helpful and needful? Absolutely. But you know and I know that not everyone a medical doctor says to you is true. Not everything. And there are some things that they give you and tell you and tell you to take and prescribe for you that is not what you need. I know that the medical doctors here at the Bible Church would say with me, there are times when people come into their office and they outline what is going on in in their life and every one of these medical doctors would say this, this is not a physical problem. This is not a physical issue. This is an issue of the soul. This is an issue of someone's thinking. This is an an issue that must be dealt with biblically. This is an issue of their sanctification. This is a temptation to avoid. This is thinking that needs to be changed. And when they change that thinking according to God's will and word, then guess what? They respond. This is called sanctification. And we have to be very, very careful that we don't just jump on the bandwagon and so very quickly say to someone, listen, you have struggles in your life, go see a medical doctor and go on drugs. Take Prozac, Ritalin. But to be very, very careful that we do this with people, that we encourage this. And even as medical professionals, we have to be very, very careful that we don't short-circuit the process of sanctification in a person's life by giving them a physical answer, which may in part be physical, but may actually, in reality, sometimes not be physical at all. We have to be very, very careful that this sanctification that we're talking about is a biblical sanctification. And when ultimately we know and they know that we have done everything for them on a spiritual level and we believe they've done everything they can on a spiritual dimension to challenge their own thinking, to marshal their thoughts according to God's Word, and there seem to be physical issues of life, absolutely. They need to be taken to a medical professional. They need a physical examination. But what we often do is we often run to that in the very first place. And when we run to that in the very first place, we short-circuit what God could and would and should do in their lives if we avail ourselves of His Word and His wisdom. 
And so psychological sanctification, which is probably the most rampant in our day, is something we have to be very, very careful. And when we are, we'll be able to help people in ways that will be dramatic. You say, do you have testimony of this? Yes. I've had testimony of some people who've come to me for counseling. I remember specifically one lady who came to me, had a troubled marriage, troubled relationship with her husband, troubled relationship with her children. She'd gone to a medical professional. They'd given her all kinds of drugs to take. She had a list of drugs she was taking that was an arm length long. And we began to work and talk and pray and study and look at her thinking and challenge her in that area. And she began to see these issues as ultimately spiritual at the core. And she began to say to herself, you know what? I've allowed these drugs in my system. And I believe ultimately my issue is spiritual at its core. And she began to challenge her own thoughts. I never told her to do anything with regard to drugs. I never even counseled her to do anything with regard to that. I'm not a medical professional, nor would I give anybody advice in that arena. But what I said was, the spiritual dynamics of your life need to be dealt with in this way. And when she responded to that, she ultimately decreased the level of that medication, and she came out the other side, and she has not been on drugs since. She was challenging her own life, her own thoughts, And she was marshalling those thoughts according to the will and word of God. And it was beautiful to see. And to this very day, there's a twinkle in my eye and there's a twinkle in their eye because they know that they've worked through those issues in their marriage and the issue of her thoughts and her husband's thoughts to a point where now this man is pastoring today. It's a wonderful truth, this sanctification. And it's something that we all desperately, desperately need to pursue. Don't buy into that which short-circuits the matter of true biblical sanctification. And when you do, when you grab a hold of this biblical sanctification that we've talked about, it is so radically freeing. It is so wonderful. It's so dynamic. It causes one to be just like Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, this has been so wonderful tonight. I know that the implications of this truth would cause one to defend their faith in such a way that they can say, I know I'm not what I ought to be, but I thank God I'm not what I was. I'm growing. I'm learning. I'm coming to a place of genuine, heart-rending, Biblically precise sanctification. And it is painful, but it is beneficial. We ask, Father, that you would give us, even as a breakthrough tonight, the kind of in-depth teaching and understanding that would catapult us, not psychologically, not with a higher life, not with charismatic crisis, not with those who would suggest a perfectionism, not with those who would do it through some deliverance ministry, but I am being changed by the very pure, holy word of the living God. Oh Lord, that's what we need. Our sanctification deserves no less. You deserve no less. You've given us your word. You expect us to follow it. And we do so as best we can, as best we understand it. And when we see these kinds of short-circuited sanctifications, we know that we must follow the path that you have already laid out for us. And we do so willingly 
and excitedly because you're working your work of grace in us. May we not impede it in any way so that Jesus Christ, the leader and pioneer of our sanctification, would be so real to us, we would be becoming just like Him. We thank You for this study tonight. May it profit our souls throughout all eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.